The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Businesses won over workers at an ideologically divided Supreme Court this week. The justices voted five to four with the conservative justices in the majority that the workers at a California lighting retailer could not band together in arbitration to get compensation from their employers failure to protect their data. Joining me is Mark Rifkin, a senior partner at Wolf Haldenstein. He is a securities and class action attorney. So Mark, this isn't the type of case that we're familiar with. Can we sue or do we have to arbitrate? This was, can we arbitrate as a group? That's right, June. And this is not the first time the Supreme Court has written on this. The the law has evolved a little bit, but since 2003, there have been three or four cases having to do with this issue, and, and we've seen it grow to the point now where I think the, the court, at least as it's currently constituted, the pro-business faction of the court is going to protect businesses and, uh, and compel individual arbitrations almost at any expense. The Chief Justice wrote the majority opinion. What was the reasoning of the conservatives? So the Chief Justice uh, said that the FAA, the Federal uh, Arbitration Act, uh, essentially preempts any state law, including the California state law that would interpret a contract against the drafter, an ambiguous contract against the drafter. And that's a bit of a reversal from what we have generally seen from the court in terms of how they approach state law rights. And it's certainly a change from the 2003 decision in Green Tree Financial versus Basel, where the court left to the arbitrators the question of whether an arbitration could or could not proceed on a class-wide basis. Justice Elena Kagan said that the majority had gone well beyond what they'd done in previous rulings. So Roberts also said that class arbitrations were at odds with the basic goals of arbitration, which he said were speed and simplicity. Is that true? How does class arbitration work? Class arbitration works uh, much the same way that it would in in a courtroom. Uh, it, it adds a layer of complication to an arbitration, but plenty of other procedures add layers of complications to arbitrations too. And I think where the, where the court is deeply divided is the extent to which arbitration on a class-wide basis is a question of uh, absolute consent or, or clear consent or whether it's the sort of thing that a state court or state law can can supply in the case of an agreement that's at least ambiguous. The, the first of these cases, the Basel case, there was no agreement to arbitrate on a class-wide basis. The court said it was up to the arbitrators to determine, and the arbitrators, in fact, uh, determined in that instance uh, that uh, class-wide arbitration will be allowed. 
it, it, it's not inconsistent with the purpose of the Federal Arbitration Act to allow class-wide arbitration. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Now, I, I take it from, from what you said since the departure that all four of the liberal justices felt the need to write dissents to send a message. They don't always do that or often do that. What did you get from their dissents? Well, I... A few things. First, I think it's it's uh, highly unusual that there are four dissents um, in a case that really should not involve too much consternation. I thought some of the language was extremely provocative. Uh, some of the ways that the court described the disagreement uh, suggests to me a very deeply divided court between, in this case, between the pro-business faction and the pro-consumer and pro-worker faction. I don't, I don't like to think of them as liberals or conservatives, although that may be the way they also line up, but, but there is a clear pro-business wing of the court and a clear pro-consumer, pro-worker wing of the court, and, and we are seeing uh, more and more evidence of the division between them. Yes, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, quoting an earlier dissent, said the decision was the court's latest effort, quote, to deny employees and consumers effective relief against powerful economic entities. Let's talk about some of those earlier decisions. This is the latest in a line of Supreme Court decisions that have backed arbitration. Tell us about the progression of these cases. So... Uh, Let's begin at, at the very beginning, which is when, when the Federal Arbitration Act was first enacted. It was primarily meant to allow businesses to be able to settle disputes in a reasonably efficient, speedy way without need to go to court. And so when Congress passed the FAA in 1925, they did it really at the behest of the business community. It, it's now become not so much a tool of business disputes, but it's become a way for businesses to be able to limit their exposure to um, whether it's workers or consumers or individuals, to limit their exposure in a way that does away with class actions and really keeps the playing field very unlevel. I think that the dissent gets exactly to the heart of that issue because you have a, a, a huge corporation oftentimes spending shareholder money, not even its own money, and they're aligned against an individual with a relatively small claim. And most of these arbitration agreements provide that if, if the arbitration were to proceed on a class-wide basis, then the arbitration agreement itself would be null and void. This one did not. It, it had no provision in it that addressed class arbitration one way or another, but it did refer to procedures that allowed arbitrations to proceed on a class-wide basis. And so the division in the court was whether that created an ambiguity such that the California state law, the contra preferendum, law would allow the court to interpret that ambiguity against the drafter, against the company, and give the individual workers the right to proceed on a class-wide basis, which is a realistic, practical matter, is the only way these cases can proceed. And the divided court said no. So how big a loss is this for consumers or employees? A scale of 1 to 10, is it huge? Is it 
three. It's incremental. I mean, we, we've seen this constant drumbeat now. This is not new news. Um, I, I think to some of the justices on the, on the pro-individual side, it, it's a bridge too far. And, and I think the fact that we saw four very strong dissents suggests that they're really reaching the limit of their willingness to sit quietly and watch the rights of individuals eroded in a very business-friendly Supreme Court. But in terms of the change, we've, we've come a long way since 2003 when the court decided Basel on this class action question. We went from that to Stoltz-Nielsen where the court says, look, if, if the agreement is silent on uh, whether a class can arbitrate or not, and the parties agree that that silence implies there was no agreement on the issue, then we won't require class-wide arbitration to Concepcion, where the court says class action waivers are valid and enforceable. Now to the Lamps Plus case, where the court says, in silence, we're not going to allow it. And even in, ambiguity, in, in cases of ambiguity, we're not going to allow it. All right. Thanks so much, Mark. It's a pleasure having you here again. That's Mark Rifkin, senior partner at Wolf Haldenstein. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.